Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Philip Stafford, editor of FT Trading Room. Also on the line from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. Today we'll be talking about Donald Trump and what his presidency of the US will mean for Wall Street. A look at another angle on Brexit, in particular what the possibility of euro-denominated trading moving away from London would mean for jobs in the city. And finally, look at Asia and the prospect for investment banking. First, though, to the US and the big story at the moment. Donald Trump's election as US president obviously has uh, huge implications across many areas of uh, US and global policy. But Ben, one of the things that the City of London and Wall Street are most focused on is the kinds of people they will put into key appointments, particularly at the Treasury and at the Fed and what that means for the regulatory and broader uh, financial environment for their activities. What are you, uh, what are you hearing? It's, it's a mix of personalities at this stage. I think um, normally in an election cycle, after somebody's won, then you get a, a few weeks of, um, of names flying around. I think in this case, uh, everything's off the table because it's, it's Donald Trump uh, that's going to be sworn in um, in a couple of months. But uh, there are uh, one or two names beginning to emerge. I think uh, Anthony Scaramucci is, is clearly angling for the, uh, the SEC chairman job. I think uh, on the Treasury Secretary side, I think um, the, the Jamie Dimon uh, signal last week was a helpful one to signal that... Um, uh, Wall Street, if not back in favour, then, then the era of, of, of bank bashing is probably uh, coming to an end. But I think um, Steve Mnuchin, uh, Donald Trump's close confidant, he served as his campaign finance manager uh, for the past uh, six months or so, I think uh, he's very well placed. And of course, he's an ex-Goldman Sachs banker as well, isn't he? He's ex-Goldman, yeah. yeah. The idea that this administration will be a further removed from Wall Street is a remote one. And then there's the Federal Reserve, because tradition has it, uh, or at least sometimes the Federal Reserve chairman will resign or at least offer their resignation. Janet Yellen seems to have um, stepped back from that prospect. But there are a couple of seats at the Fed, not least there's an expectation that a key figure as governor of the Federal Reserve, Dan Tarullo, who kind of oversees all of the financial regulatory architecture may go yeah. sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's right. That's what I've been hearing. I think um, uh, Torillo has been, it's really been the face of um, what the banks see as tough bank regulation uh, over the past four or five years. He's, of course, never been officially sworn in as, as, as the vice chair of regulation of the Fed, but he's done that job anyway. And he's done it very well if you're a, if you're, if you're a Fed governor. He, he's been very effective. He's, he's gold-plated whatever, whatever has emerged from Basel. And of course, the U.S. banks uh, don't like that, but um, the, the, the chances are, um, I, I've been hearing that uh, he'll be out before long. If he wants to take up a position in academia, that begins next September, October, then he's probably going to have about six months of limbering up to do and prepare his, his courses and so on. So 
uh, if, if he's around by the spring, uh, then that could be a bit of a surprise. And, of course, he's just one of um, four, you know, I think, key appointments uh, that uh, are due for renewal within the, about 18 months of a, of a Trump presidency. There's also the ACC. That's Tom Curry. He's up in April 2017. There's Martin Grunberg at the FDIC. He's November 2017. Uh, Richard Cordray, that's a key one. He, he's at the CFPB. Uh, March 2018, and of course Janet Yellen herself, October 2018. So within about two years, it, it's all change at the top. And will this then um, prepare the ground for a huge change of direction, a move away from, well, first of all, the kind of monetary policy that Janet Yellen has overseen, but also uh, the pretty tough regulatory environment? Are we going to see everything unwound, do you think? Well, if you look at the bank share prices, what they've done over the four days since uh, Donald Trump was the surprise victor, you, you'd think so. You'd think financial stocks are, are great again. Uh, the Nasdaq back, uh, Banks Index is up 13%. The S&P is up 1.1%. But I think that's more to do with uh, <clears throat> the prospect of rising short-term rates. Uh, all the banks have um, essentially fixed liabilities and uh, floating assets. And so uh, any, any rising short-term rates is going to push up the gap. They've also got these huge securities portfolios. So if, if yields do rise at the long end, then there's a sort of rotational effect, which is very good for profits. And, of course, there is the promise, yes, of the new regulation regime. And I think of the three factors, that's probably the, uh, the weakest so far because there's just so much uncertainty. But on paper, you can say that the, the direction of travel uh, is, is, is changing. The fact that everything was gold-plated, as I said, from Basel, uh, the fact that um, the CFPB in particular was mo- was making the, li- the bank's lives miserable. I think that's changing. Okay, but let me j- just bring Martin in here for a final verdict on Trump and, and the implications. Martin. I, I think having had, had breakfast along with you uh, with a chairman of a one of the world's uh, top uh, banks this morning, uh, we we can be sure that the banks are pretty pleased with the early signals from the president-elect Trump, lower taxes. Um, They're not so excited about higher spending, but certainly on, as you mentioned, Ben, the the signalling of Jamie Dimon as a potential Treasury Secretary, um, you compare that with Elizabeth Warren, who was widely considered to be the favourite if Hillary Clinton had won, you couldn't get more of a contrast between hawks and and dovishness in terms of the attitude towards the the Wall Street. So I think that bankers do expect more helpful policy making, more helpful regulation, more helpful oversight, a friendlier approach from Washington in the future. And that is good. Whether that will extend to the foreign banks that operate in the US is less clear. And I think it'll be interesting to see how they are treated, because, of course, they're all in the process of setting up intermediate holding companies, having to put more capital in the US and go through the fearsome US stress tests for the first time. So that's going to be pretty tough for them. But I think they're so this could increase, actually, the dominance of Wall Street banks globally in investment banking. One thing worth pointing out as well is it's not all black news for, for the European banks. Uh, if the the Dantarulo theory that he will leave sooner rather than later uh, actually comes to pass, he's seen as uh, one of the most hawkish figures um, influencing the Basel Committee, the, the global overseer of, uh, of bank rules, and his declining influence may kill off the more severe parts of, of the latest incarnation of Basel rules, the Basel, so-called Basel IV. Many people believe that they may end up being a bit of a damp squib, which would be great news for European banks who are up in arms about things like risk-weighted 
flaws. Ben uh, and Martin, thank you both for that assessment of Donald Trump's presidency and what it means for Wall Street. Let's move on to our second topic, uh, and I'm joined now by Phil Stafford, who looks at all things trading. Very interesting exclusive you had yesterday, Phil, around the jobs implications of Brexit, particularly in the area of euro-denominated clearing. Now, for listeners who are not familiar with this whole territory, let's just explain. Uh, One of the things, one of the outcomes of Brexit that many people expect is that the ECB uh, could put pressure on uh, or even kind of change rules in order to force institutions to clear euro-denominated transactions within uh, the eurozone. a lot of these transactions currently get cleared in London, and that could have severe implications for jobs. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of things to unpack here. I mean, clearing at its simplest point is, is kind of that bit between when you've traded something and uh, when you actually receive the, the goods. Now, that could take a couple of days, but when you have uh, big derivatives contracts, that could be weeks, months, or possibly even years. So the opportunity to, for things to go wrong grows. So there's a, there's a big risk management aspect to it. And this is actually, it's been one of London's big businesses for quite a while now. And as you say, one of the oddities is that uh, London is uh, is the main place for, for uh, clearing of euros. And uh, post-Brexit, there is a fear that that could all go into what is, will be the European Union. Why would that be? Uh, or simply that uh, the the ECB would uh, would demand it. Now this has been met with alarm in the city, and this uh, this report from uh, EY partly explains why. There have been discussions and and talk that that there could be up to a hundred thousand jobs at risk here. Uh, no one's ever really known where that numbers come from. Well, this is EY's first attempt to at least put some uh, some real substance to it. And, you know, they, they've, they've said it. there could be a total of around 83,000 job losses. They've broken it down into um, maybe 31,000 of relating to core in, intermediaries, investment banks, sales and trading, into dealer brokers, uh, professional services, which is a big part of, of, uh, of clearing, uh, legal and accounting advisory. Then you've got financial technology, information services, wealth and asset management. The, the point being, really, that it, it's an ecosystem, and if one bit of it moves, then it's not just the uh, the jobs in clearing, which rather strangely, I mean, there's, there's only a thousand jobs that they they predict from clearing houses. There's only uh, four really in in, uh, in the UK, and they it's, it's a small community. They all know each other. Uh, it's it's really that ratchet effect, and uh, that's that's what EY is doing. It has all we also say with it. This is a a worst-case scenario, they're assuming that there's a hard Brexit, that Britain doesn't get access to the single market. Uh, so within that 86,000, I'm sure there's there's a, a lot of scope for change. Martin, the big question is, will this happen? Will Euro clearing have to move? Well, we, we don't know. I mean, the odds are that there will be some attempt to, to do so. Uh, there is massive debate over whether it will move. 
um, even if there is an attempt to do so. The ECB tried previously to um, force uh, euro clearing and there was a judicial battle the UK fought back and because the UK was still a member of the single market um, partly because of that the European Court of Justice ruled in the UK's favour and said that uh, the ECB was wrong Um, but if the argument goes that once the UK is out of the EU and no longer in the single market then the ECB will be able to force this to happen. Others say how can you possibly force decide where euros are cleared um, you know it's a freely traded currency how can you possibly determine that you're it's illegal for uh, banks to clear it in the UK the only way that um, Europe will be able to do that is to force its own banks to only clear euros in uh, inside the the, the EU um, but how can they force US banks and British banks to do that um, they unless they get an agreement as part of the article 50 or the brexit negotiations from the UK to introduce law that euros can't be cleared in the UK how can they how can they achieve that so they need the UK to be complicit in this and agree to this so there's going to be a hell of a battle here and we even you know even hear from bankers well um you know this would be so uh inefficient to break up the massive market for clearing currency and 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 currency swaps that you have in the uk where you're allowed to you can net off all of these different cross uh, positions in currencies against each other for capital purposes and that greatly reduces the cost of those hedging positions that that companies all around the world take. And if you break it up into separate markets, you no longer have such a benefit. So you'll increase the cost for all of these companies that are taking out insurance. Very damaging. And then people say, well, why won't the the banks just move all of this to New York, where they've already got quite a big pool of of hedging as well? Uh, Why would they move it into the EU? Final word from you. Yeah, uh, no, Martin is, is absolutely right in what he says, and, and the EU as uh, do have to, to be careful uh, about the the New York drug US angle because uh, any rules they they make that apply to the UK would equally apply to the US. The US already has uh, equivalence decisions that uh, they uh, there's no problem with with the uh, the US and uh, and the EU on and their regulations. Any upsetting of that balance could uh, could begin to uh, set up a whole series of negotiations, which they really wouldn't like to do. No, and a tit for tat response that says you can't clear dollars anywhere other than in the US. It doesn't uh, end well. This whole uh, screenplay, I suspect. Anyway, we should leave it there and see how that pans out. Thank you very much. Okay, well, let's go to Don Wineland, who is our Asia financial correspondent. It's quite an interesting time for the Asian financial scene, particularly on the M&A front, on the investment banking front more broadly, I suppose. But in M&A terms, Europe has been in the doldrums for some time now. America may be going through a glacial phase in the wake of the Trump election victory. Asia, by contrast, has been having a pretty healthy year, which has been in turn pretty good for investment bank earnings, I guess. Absolutely. On the M&A front in Asia, we've had a very robust year, mainly from deals coming out of China and you know going into the US or into Europe. Asia is leading the cross-border M&A deal flow globally right now. So yes, quite a strong year. That said, there are increasingly questions being asked about the solidity of Western investment banks' presence in the region, not so much because of the M&A 
issue because obviously that's relatively strong. But because on the equity capital market side, the kind of slowdown in IPOs in particular, there is a real question mark over whether this is profitable enough business to be in. Margins have historically been far, far thinner than they are in many of these banks' home market in the US. And it looks like things are getting tighter. Absolutely. I mean, when I say it's been a strong year here for M&A, I mean, that hasn't necessarily meant that fees have gotten any better. I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, fees here are about a third of what you get in New York. So on the advisory front, you could see, you know, an even greater increase in outbound Chinese M&A, but Chinese companies simply don't pay that much for advisory services. So that leaves a lot of the banks, you know, looking to bring in revenues from the equity side of things or, or from debt capital markets. And yeah, this year has been has been quite quiet on the equity front, leaving banks to look for revenues from advisory or from DCM. One of the factors I think is fair to say in the in the Asian market is it's kind of quite different from elsewhere, is the extent to which even when there are big deals, whether they be big equity deals or whatever to advise on, clients tend to get a heck of a lot of banks involved. So a fee base, you know, even if they're paying several hundred million dollars, if they're splitting that among 25 different banks, then there's not much to go around. Exactly. I mean, that's another huge problem here is is how thin the fees can be divided up on some of these deals. And, you know, of course, no global investment bank wants to be on an IPO with 20 other banks, but that's simply how it's done here right now. Not for all deals, but you do see a number of deals that look like that. Postal Savings Bank of China is probably the best example. This was a $7.4 billion IPO, and you had 26 investment banks splitting $118 million in, in fees. I think this, this actually set a record for a number of advisors on an IPO of this magnitude. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Even if some areas of the investment banking market are booming in, in Asia, as you say, particularly on the M&A side. It doesn't mean it's a great time for Western investment banks in particular to operate in the region. Don, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Phil here in the studio, uh, Ben McClanahan from New York and Don Wineland from Hong Kong. Uh, and also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye.